Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today on the show, we're going to talk mainly about the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, MBTI. It's the most popular personality test in the world by far. It is widely criticized, but it is also also widely embraced. I mean, you're not going to go through life without having a conversation with somebody about your four-letter type. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the remarkable origin story of this, developed by two women who were not really scientific researchers, but were amazing intellects in their own way. Uh, We'll also talk uh, to one critic of the test, uh, explaining why, in fact, it's probably not a good idea to use that to screen, for example, job applicants, which companies do all the time. Anyway, lots of things to talk about after this news. Personality And think of all the books About Dubarry's looks What was it made of the toast of Paris She had a well-developed Personality What did Romeo see in Juliet Or Pierrot in Pierrette Or Jupiter in Juno And when Salome danced and had the ball. So, yes, 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 today we're going to talk about personality and personality tests. And the driving force behind that is going to be the Myers Briggs type indicator. Hold on here. Sorry, I had to turn up my headphones a little bit. Uh, the Myers Briggs uh, type indicator is the most popular personality test in the world. I mean, the numbers are kind of insane. More than 2 million people take it every year. It's used in at least 26 countries. It is wildly uh, popular in parts of Asia. Uh, There are situations in China where you can be turned down for a job because you don't have the, you have the wrong four-letter personality type. Uh, In Korea, it's so popular that you can buy individual milk cartons with letters from (laughs) Or Myers-Briggs personality type on them. And in other words, you can pick out the milk carton, those little individual milk cartons that has your thing on it. It's used by Fortune 500 companies, universities, all kinds of things, wellness retreats. Uh, there are more than 2,000 personality tests on the market. A lot of them are kind of derived, shall we say, from Myers-Briggs, uh, although possibly, Katie, not this one. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. It's your birthday. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. 
You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. I take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. All right. That, of course, is from Blade Runner. It's not a Myers-Briggs personality test. And if you know, Hildur Mira, that it's called the Voigt-Kampf test, you are a total nerd. Um, all right. So just very quickly before we, I, I have you meet our guests, I just want to say the story of the Myers-Briggs test is an amazing story. I had not uh, understood it until I did a lot of reading today. So uh, Catherine Briggs uh, is a woman uh, growing up being homeschooled in the uh, mid to late 19th century. Uh, she eventually does, after being homeschooled at the age of 13, go to a university or a college that's the precursor of Michigan State. She graduates from there. She's one of the very few women there. She graduates at the age of 16 from college, second in her class. But then she marries a guy named Briggs. Uh, she she was Catherine Cook. She marries a guy named Briggs. He's a researcher, engineer, and physicist. And that's kind of, you know, the way things were in, in that uh, era of history going to be the end uh, of her. She's going to be a mom and be, you know, leading a domestic life. Except she can't really get all this personality stuff out of her head. And she's kind of using her house as a lab for neighborhood children. She's kind of trying to understand their personalities. Um Eventually, her daughter Isabel, who will eventually become Isabel Briggs Myers. So now we got now you've got Myers Briggs is born, shares similar interests, but goes off to college. At which point, uh, Catherine goes into a depression, uh, but then reads Jung's book on personality types and winds up striking up a correspondence with Jung uh, and uh, taking a lot of her ideas. She and Isabel eventually take a lot of their ideas, combine them with Jung's, uh, and then the rest is uh, history and the present and the future as well. So we're going to talk a lot about this today from a bunch of different perspectives. Um, here to get us started here, somebody who's been on the show plenty of times before, Paul Teeger is a pro- prolific writer on personality types, including uh, including the, um, the more than million copies selling uh, Do What You Are. Uh, he also has worked as a jury consultant, uh, using, once again, uh, insight into personality types, done lots of other things as well. Uh, so, Paul Teeker, welcome to our conversation. Thanks, Colin. Delighted to be here. So maybe we can start with uh, Catherine jotting a little love notes to Carl Jung uh, across the ocean. Uh, there is a way in which she takes this kind of homegrown idea and combines it with some of the ideas that Jung has about personality. Maybe you could see just a little bit more about that. <clears throat> sure. Well, actually, um, uh, Catherine got interested really in seriously in, ser- in earnest when Isabel, her daughter, brought home her boyfriend, Clarence, uh, who they ended up calling Chief. And Chief was so different than everybody else that Catherine knew about that it really piqued her interest in how are people so different? So that's what she really started studying in earnest, as I understand it. Um, she interested Isabel, who was a young woman at the time. And Isabel spent pretty much her whole life developing this assessment uh, to access Jung's theories. It's called the Myers-Briggs <clears throat> Type Indicator, or MBTI. But I really refer to it as a Jung slash Myers model because this is really the work of Carl Jung. Um, Catherine's system 
what she was developing the system when she discovered young as you pointed out his book came out in 1921 she read it in 23 and said this guy's got the whole thing here so she really adopted his model and with the exception of one of the scales judging and perceiving this is all Jungian's work yeah, so we might want to just quickly remind people. I think this is so fully popularized that most people know about this, but there are four scales, these four essentially sure. binary scales. Remind people what they are. Sure. Well, these are four different ways that people uh, relate to the world. Uh, first one has to do with whether your energy is more directed outward or inward. These are, these are, these are called extroverts or introverts. And nobody is exclusively one or the other but everybody is primarily one or the other, and we believe this is inborn. The second one is the way, the different ways that people take in information. Some people perceive through their five senses. They tend to be realistic, down to earth, practical, more, <clears throat> more um, um, uh, sensing. We call them sensing types. And other people uh, take in information through their fifth, through their sixth sense, and we call those people intuitive types. So again, nobody is exclusively one or the other, but everybody's primarily. Uh, and then you've got to do something with this information you take in. And so there's two different ways of making decisions. Thinking types tend to, to make decisions more logically, analytically. They step back from the uh, situation, um, weighing the pros and cons, they're called thinking types. And people who make decisions more based on their own values, their feelings, how other people be affected are called feeling types. Those are all Jungian terms and Jungian concepts. <clears throat> Isabel Myers added the fourth scale, which has to do with the way people like to live their lives. She calls some judging types. Judging does not mean judgmental. It means deciding. And the other side, perceiving types. And that doesn't necessarily mean perceptive, but people who like to keep taking in information. So because there are these, these four different scales, there's the opportunity for 16 different personality types. Yeah. So um, one of the ways that you have used this a lot in your work and in your writing is really more at the level of self-insight, right? And, and navigating the world. Uh, if you can understand some of these things about yourself and maybe some sure. of the ways that you are different or similar to other people, it, it's it's helpful in a lot of situations. I don't know. Give like maybe a, a specific example of how that might be true. Sure. Well, I, <clears throat> I don't want to equate myself to Isabel Myers or Carl Jung, <clears throat> but I'd say that uh, Carl Jung, this, these theories that came from Carl Jung, Isabel was the first person who was able to really create an assessment that would access his theories, uh, made it available to the public. And I think that Barbara's and my, my co-author, Barbara's and my contribution was to take these insights and make them practical. So our first book was Do What You Are. It was really the first book that looked at, the first time <clears throat> it was looked at as um, what, how does your personality type impact career choice, satisfaction, and success. As we had children, we realized our kids are different. So we wrote a book called Nurture by Nature, which is all about parenting and understanding who these little critters are, especially when they're different from you and your spouse or from siblings. Um, as you mentioned, I was a jury consultant, so I worked for many, many years doing that. Um, and I created a book, wrote a book called The Art of Speed Reading People, which is all about how to quickly understand somebody else so that you can get on their wavelength. Speed reading people, the purpose of speed reading people is to speed reach them. So this is a, a tool that all kinds of folks, you know, managers, leaders, uh, lawyers, doctors, teachers, parents, anyone who deals with somebody else can really get on the other person's wavelength. That's another practical application. Uh, another book that we wrote has to do with relationships. 
understanding who your spouse is and the joys and the challenges of that pairing. Um, a lot of the other work that I've done is around teams. Uh, most recently, it's been about understanding the personality type really predisposes people to certain health risks. Okay, so I, I want to just interrupt here and sort of get sure. uh, um, sort of nail down some specific things because I think I think one of the things that's interesting here is I mean sometimes it isn't the whole four letter type sometimes it's yeah. just understanding one of those two different things. I'll give an example here. This this fascinated me. I read this today that Herman Miller. You know, everybody knows what the Herman Miller chair is, but Herman Miller Miller is the world's leading office designer, uh, office furniture designer, uh, and they use a version of MBTI, uh, their own kind of modified version, to analyze the personality types of white collar workers, to help engineers, designers, and architects allocate office space and furniture and technology. And uh, the, the, the thing that I read quotes a a guy from Herman Miller saying, "We have found that only eight percent of workstations fit the personality." of workers using them. And I lit up at that, Paul, as you know, I'm, I'm an INTP. I'm pretty deeply all, all, the thing, all of those <laughs> things. Uh, and I'm pretty deeply introverted. And I remember that, uh, you know, quite a few years ago now, right here where I work at CT Public, uh, we suddenly decided that the newsroom would have this kind of open office plant, <laughs> which I completely hated. There was like no way to get, I just sort of started working at home and coming in when I had to. Uh, but that's an interesting, I, like there are some people who would really thrive in that environment and thrive through the kind of constant collaboration and the noise and people having lunch near you and listening in on their conversations and joining in. I'm not that kind of person. So it makes me happy to think that Herman Miller might be thinking about the world that way, that we're not all the same. Well, I'm actually sitting in the Herman Miller chair right this very moment. <clears throat> so I feel a little kinship. You know, there's all kinds of applications. I think I, I haven't done this, read, read this itself, uh, the study, but I think he's probably, and the stuff you're talking about is more extroversion, introversion. Yeah. Do you want to be surrounded by people? Do you want to be interrupted? Do you want that energy? Or do you want to have a door you can close and kind of uh, close out the world until you're ready to, to interact with them? That's what it sounds like he's mostly involved with. And uh, that's what I would think is probably the the uh, the most relevant application for the chair business. Right. So let me give you another specific example of the difference of a letter. And this is one that you're actually very familiar with, which is that um, I am high in the end uh, of perceiving. So perceiving is, as you say, as you, you kind of you live your life kind of asking questions, not necessarily uh, coming to uh, immediate resolutions, kind of enjoying the process of things sure. unfolding. Uh, and I, <laughs> on two or three occasions, have failed to understand that the people that I work the most closely with, with the first person was Patrick Scahill, my original producer, it's still true with Lily Tyson, are judging people. They really need decisions made. They need to know. They need to know pretty quickly what's going to happen. They don't like the idea of something that's just going to kind of unfold. They don't particularly like the fact that I want to go on the air with no guests and no plan sometimes and just take calls. But I, it took me a long time to realize you've got to respect that about the other person, not insist that they be more like you. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I, I feel your pain and their pain, mm -hmm. um, knowing all, all those players. Uh, but somehow it works because people are able to accommodate other people's styles. I think this is one of the great advantages of the MBTI or personality type is to understand people are different and we all communicate uh, and relate most easily to people like us. And the challenges come when people are different, whether it's extroverts or introverts or judges or perceivers, which you were just explaining. One quick thing I would add, Colin, if mm, I might, sure. and that is there's a difference between the model, which is a Jung-Myers model, and the MBTI as an instrument. 
The MBTI or any of these other 2000 <clears throat> tests that you referenced, they're the vehicles. They're just the way to get to the destination. To me, the destination is better relationships, uh, better parenting skills, um, healthier bodies, healthier minds. So the, the assessment itself is not something that I don't pay a whole lot of attention to. I've trained thousands of people early in my career in the MBTI. I don't use it anymore. I use another assessment that I've created because it's really it's really the model and the insights that come from it rather than, you know, a, a paper and pencil or an online test, in my judgment. Right. And so, um, yeah, we can talk a little bit about that, too. There are ways in which, and you'll, we'll hear some critiques of the uh, MBTI in, in the second segment here. But I also feel as though, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that certain personality types are probably better at recognizing and accommodating other personality types. Uh, and I, I think as an INTP, I'm really bad at that. That's one of the aspects of my personality type. Uh, I'll give you another example that a lot of listeners to this station can identify with, and, and you were there for this particular insight, which is the Kion Wolf, who was originally working on this show for many years uh, in a very close capacity to me, uh, is not an INTP, uh, and she's particularly high on the feeling over as opposed to thinking. Everything with Kion runs through her emotions. And I had no clue about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I completely failed to take that into account for about a year, year and a half of working with her. Um, and, and once you pointed it out, then I, I suddenly realized, oh, she needs something different from me, from what I think people need. But I think it's probably true that some of these personality types just aren't even really good at noticing the other personality type. Well, you're exactly right. And INTPs, <clears throat> which stands for introvert, intuitive, thinking, perceived type, are only about three and a half percent of the population. So there are not a lot of you guys. Um, and I think that you're right. I mean, people who are feeling types, especially intuitive feeling types or NFs, tend to be much more perceptive about people, their emotions, their feelings. That's why there are seven NFs or 17% of the population, but 85% of therapists. Because we, and I'm one of these people, gravitate towards uh, uh, activities that lets us listen to something, try to use our intuition to figure out what, what's going on here, and then use our feeling to help that person feel better or uh, be healthier. So, so there's a lot here. You know, type doesn't explain everything, yeah. but after 40 years of this stuff, it really explains a lot. So one of the things that you've seen, because you have been working at this for 40 years, when you started, there was essentially no internet. Uh, there was no internet. Uh, and so one of the things, and the internet obviously is really, really good at popularizing things, not necessarily in a scientific way. And, and so, I mean, just, you know, we stumbled across a guy named Frank James, who has 1.2 million followers on YouTube. And he's sort of a comedian, but also sort of a individual webinar kind of person. And he's all about Myers-Briggs stuff. And I was looking at him and I was thinking, wow, I, I don't know how many more islands like this there are, although as we sort of surfed around and looked, it was clear there are a lot. So the internet has kind of gotten people really interested in personality types and four-letter personality types, but maybe in kind of a not particularly well-controlled way. I don't know. What's your reaction watching this all unfold like that? Well, first of all, I'm not a fan of digital technology. I think it does a lot more harm to humanity than, than good, but we won't get onto that. Um, but I would say that, you know, one of the one of the downsides of the Internet is that it's indiscriminate. I mean, you don't have to have any credentials. You just have to have a platform. Um, and most of the stuff is really about marketing. I mean, there are thousands of assessments that have got no validity or no reliability at all, nor do any nor do any 
do people really care about that? And yet, because it's on there, people will say, oh. And and the other thing is, you know this, Colin, everybody's interested in themselves. So if they can take some little quickie thing on Facebook or or someplace else that tells them, purportedly tells them about themselves, then they're gonna they're gonna be interested whether it's valid or not. So I'm just not a fan of of uh, those applications. I don't know this guy Frank James. I know several people who are internet kind of leaders and influencers and personality type. One site that's really good is called Truity T R U I T Y, and they really know what they're doing and they've got great interesting information. Yeah, maybe last question here. This comes from Lily Tyson, who's probably you know very concerned about all of our personality types as our senior producer. She wonders if types change over time. You know, you say that so many of these characteristics are essentially inborn. Um, on the other hand, we're not the same people usually at sixty as we were at twenty. So, so do our types change or are just manifestations? Yeah, that's a great question, and I've been asked that um, many, many, many times. So, if I'm in a room with a thousand people. I say, to, I've had said this, I've had this experience. I ask how many people have children and about 80% of the hands go up. And I say, how many people, I'm sorry, about 70% of the hands go up. How many of you have more than one child? Most of the hands stay up there. How many of your children are like each other? And almost every hand goes down, except the guy that's your type who likes to argue about this stuff, <laughs> right? And um, it's sort of said tongue in cheek, but not a whole lot. Um, the reality is I believe we're born with a type we have that whole type of our life. Obviously, as we grow and mature, our behaviors change and our we, we, we get better at certain things. I mean, we act differently at a basketball game than we do at a funeral, but that's because we've got different behaviors we can use. I don't think our type changes with every new situation we um, we go into. So I, I believe type, type is there from uh, cradle to grave. All right. We're going to stop there uh, and we're going to take a little break here, uh, come back with a new guest. But uh, so great to talk to Paul Teeger, prolific author on MBTI and personality types. His books include Do What You Are, Nurture by Nature and Just Your Type. I dreamed I had to take a test. 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 I dreamed I had to take a test in the Dairy Queen. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Sometimes people are good, and they do just what they should. But the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. It's funny, but it's true. It's the same, isn't it, for me? And 
Sometimes people get wet and their parents get upset. Maybe the greatest personality researcher who ever lived, Mr. Rogers. Maybe the greatest everything who ever lived, Mr. Rogers. Uh, anyway, we're going to continue talking about uh, MBTI, Myers-Briggs uh, Type Indicator. Uh, we'll also just be talking about personality testing in general. Um, and I should say this, too. I, I, you know, as I was saying to Paul earlier, I mean, once the Internet came into existence and got hold of this stuff, it became an even bigger craze. And there's just a kabillion, to use a very specific term, uh, tumblers. <laughs> tumblers really like Myers-Briggs types. Uh, there's just, but there's sort of everything everywhere, you know, and people are having a lot of fun with it. And people do like to talk about themselves and think about themselves and who they really are. Uh, and they're at least somewhat interested in who other people are. But at the same time, I think there has arisen a sense of distrust, particularly as everything gets algorithmatized. And uh, those people who remember the Cambridge Analytica scandal from uh, tw- from 2016, that all started with a personality test. It wasn't Myers-Briggs. It was a little bit more closely modeled on what's called the Big Five or Ocean. We can maybe talk about that in just a second. But that was a commodification and use of personality information scraped out of Facebook uh, that may have significantly influenced the 2016 election. So, yeah, there's a lot of culture out there uh, that loves personality types and especially MBTI. There's also a lot of culture out there that distrust it. Uh, here's, this is from the trailer for a 2021 HBO Max documentary called Persona, The Dark Truth behind personality test B1. Our lives are shaped as profoundly by personality as they are by gender and race. I actually think personality tests are fun to take, you know, if they're low stakes. You somehow don't know what the Myers-Briggs is. It is the most well-known personality type quiz in the world. When I first took the test, I was like, wow, this thing knows me better than I know myself. It breaks us all down into 16 distinct types. Those are treated as just part of what it means to be a human being. The creators of the Myers-Briggs may have had a vision of simply helping people understand themselves. But now that the genie is out of the bottle, they can't necessarily control how it's being used. It is useful for individual people on journeys of self-discovery. But when they're used to make decisions by other people affecting somebody's life, they become dangerous tools. No dystopian music in the background. Uh, all right. Joining us now uh, is uh, Alexander Swan, an associate professor of psychology at Eureka College and host of a podcast about psychology and movies called Cinema Psych. Uh, and Alexander Swan uh, researched a paper on MBTI theory. Uh, welcome to our conversation. Hey, Colin. Uh, pleasure to be here. So say a little bit about what you did. What you, what you wanted to do was essentially measure the validity of Myers-Briggs type indicators uh, using three different metrics. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, in, in a paper with my writing partner, Randy Stein, we decided to look at the theory that your previous guest, Paul, was talking about um, that underlies the assessment, right? Everyone takes the assessment. It's the instrument. Um, and so to make an instrument, you need to have what it is that you're measuring with the instrument fully laid out. Everything all above board. You've got your assumptions. You've got the predictions that you plan to make with that. And so what we wanted to do was take a group of three 
evaluation criteria from Sean Costanzo from 1980s paper about how to evaluate validity. So validity requires uh, to assess validity, excuse me, requires using logical argumentation. So rather than like uh, doing correlations and things like that. So we tested, uh, we evaluated the theory on whether it agrees with our current understanding of personality from personality psychologists for the last several decades its internal consistency with it within itself like does it contradict itself uh and then finally is it a testable theory can you actually uh, empirically observably uh make conclusions from whatever data you're trying to or whatever test you're trying to do Right. And so you, you found it wanting in all of those areas. In um, all three, yeah. All, all three of those areas. Um, mm -hmm. And in, maybe we should talk a little bit more about sort of what you derive from that. Because obviously, right. I mean, you know, one thing about Myers-Briggs that's kind of interesting is if you go to the Myers-Briggs Foundation website, which I have done, they actually say it's not designed to be used for hiring purposes. It does not measure ability, competence, right. or skill. Uh, I think they say elsewhere it probably shouldn't be used for dating preferences, which we're going to yep. be talking about in the next segment. I mean, they're kind of upfront with this. So the question is is partly, what is this thing? And then the other okay. question is, how is yeah. it being used? Say a little bit more about that. So I, I fully agree with their uh, with their writing there that says don't use this for all of that and we, we said that you know the Myers-Briggs company the organization that runs Myers-Briggs fully uh, says they do not want to make strong statements about prediction and that's what we found it's the use by other people and I think um, what he and I, I pretty much agree with all of the trailer segment clips that you just played everyone saying all of those things minus the music uh so we don't we don't need the music there but what they were saying was fairly accurate as far as what personality psychologists think about how people use it uh my disclaimer when i usually talk about this is like go have fun take the test don't worry about it if you're on a journey of self-discovery maybe it'll help you understand a little bit more about yourself we always understand more about ourselves when we verbalize things. We may not know what's going on in our heads, but we verbalize stuff and it makes us feel better. The issue is, as one of those folks in the trailer said, is when other people start using it for other re other things, making business decisions, making dating decisions, when money in is involved. And unfortunately, to take the real test, you have to pay $50, <laughs> then people start attributing uh either making poor decisions making uh, decisions that will negatively affect other people uh and harming individuals and that's a real problem yeah no i mean you, you see some of the kind of rigid and unforgiving and consequence uh ridden uh applications of it and you get kind of nervous um on the yeah. other hand maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of the rest of social sciences. There is within the world of social sciences and academic personality testing another thing called the Big Five. There are various right. terms for yeah. it, or ocean or whatever, which seems mm -hmm. to enjoy a little bit more approval in the academic right. community. Could you say something about that? Yeah. So I could. Uh, what I like to do is just like compare the two theories here. So 
on the Myers-Briggs side, um, you have uh, Jungian type theory, so typology. And on the big five side, you have trait theory. And what I, th- what I find to be interesting uh, in the overlap of the two is that Myers-Briggs typology theory essentially just pulls traits from trait theory and just kind of lumps them together into these 16 groups lumping like things together where in trait theory you're essentially just looking at a full person uh, and their traits and those traits are then factored into five umbrella like conscientiousness agreeableness whatever uh, whatever you want to pull from ocean or canoe or whatever and and it's just a collection of traits but it's not saying that uh because you don't have this one trait that is under the umbrella of conscientiousness that you're not conscientious it's a degree to how conscientious you are based on the traits that fit you so the reason why it finds more support in personality psychology and social psychology writ large is that the trait theory is fairly simple. Um, The factor analysis, the statistics that go into creating the five factors from all of these words that we can think of from the dictionary that are adjectives fall into these over and over and over again uh, since the 1980s. And it's fairly reliable at testing, retesting, and so on and so forth, which is cannot be said about reliability of the MBTI. So that's why it it has that support. And I think if there's any test your listeners should take, for one thing, it's free, um, is to take the either the tippy, the 10 item personality inventory or um, you can go to a larger set. I forgot. I, I can't remember what the name is off the top of my head. But anything that's testing Big Five, I think your listeners would probably get a great deal more from. It's not as flowery as what you get in your MBTI results. You can't just say, I've got these four letters, but it is more valid and potentially more accurate. Right. We we should say that um, the, the things that we're talking about here as I understand it anyway, and, and feel free to correct me extremely if necessary, are are things where people are basically self-reporting, like a big five yeah. test. It's it's yeah. how, how conscientious are you? Um, right. You know, how open are you to new ideas and new experiences? So in a way, it you know, the computer version of that was garbage in, garbage out, right? There's sure. like, whatever, it's only going to tell you what you already know, which mm-hmm. may make it less appealing to people who are maybe looking for a concealed insight about themselves or their mother-in-law or something. Uh, and, and I will I will add to that, uh, push back a little bit, uh, Colin, where I will say that that's essentially what the MBTI is doing. It's just putting a nice little package and a bow on top of it with the four letters and you know, a, a massive breakdown that is not that is not theoretically valid about what your type is. It's essentially the same thing. And my point here is that not to begrudge anyone, like I said, by taking the test and learning these things about them is that both of these, both of these big five MBTI are self-report and you are giving it the information that it's going to tell you. Now, like I said a little while ago, 
It helps to verbalize that stuff. Maybe it wasn't as clear to you in your own head, but then somebody said, oh, yeah, no, you like to uh, spend more time by yourself. And so therefore you're a little bit more introverted and somebody might go, oh, yeah, you know what? That that does sound about right. I am more introverted, even though as the user, the end user of the test, you click that you prefer in whatever ways that the question is asking you you prefer to be by yourself more often than not. So it's not telling you something different than what you already know. Right. I think what we, what some of us hope for is a test that's kind of more akin to what we think of in terms of traditional psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. In other words, one's interpretations of Rorschach plots aren't mm -hmm. necessarily just restatings of things we already know about ourselves. Uh, if we have... Uh, if we see an elephant making love to a men's glee club, I think that was a Woody Allen line somewhere, uh, instead right. of something else, we're basically, I mean, the idea there is we're emptying something out of ourselves that we don't entirely understand or know about, and possibly a skilled interpreter of that can tell us even more about what that means. And and it seems to me that that's what people seem to hope that they're going to get from some of right. these personality tests. It seems less likely uh, and more likely that, as we're saying, you're, you, you might sort of search yourself, you might inventory yourself a little bit and, and say something that you had never thought about yourself because nobody ever asked you, but it's not going to go much beyond that. Right. It's not going to go much beyond that because it can't go beyond that. And there's no way to actually test that because it's unfalsifiable. You, you, we can't go inside somebody's head to see how they perceive an illusion. We, we know what their, their neurons are doing, but we don't know how someone's actually perceiving uh, that illusion or reasoning through that problem or um, accessing their memories. And so you can't falsify this, I I'm going to find your true type, because you can't do that because the person who is providing the information is the one that we cannot go inside as the even even the uh, observer or the uh, expert analyzer in your uh, example there, which was, you know, like a, a psychotherapist or something who would be, OK, well, let me analyze this within my understanding of the human mind and. You can't go that far. That that claim is unfalsifiable. Let's get into one more area here. We're going to run out of time. There's a lot of other stuff that I would like <laughs> to love to talk to you about. But, but you know, these things are very, very popular. I mean, if, yes. you, if you say there's one of available, somebody might pay 50 bucks for it. Somebody uh -huh. might want to buy a $12 book that has the test. Who knows? But people really want it. They want MBTI. They want Big Five, Ocean, whatever we're going to call that. Um, why is that? Why? why and, and is there a certain kind of type uh, you should pardon the expression of person who wants that. I would. I. I don't know. Uh, the t to answer the second part of your question, I don't. I don't know what the kind <laughs> of person is. As somebody who is trying to figure out about themselves, and again, this is kind of like astrology or the Enneagram. If you're interested in knowing more about yourself, then you know more power to you. Um, so I, I think it's popular because. It has its stay or these things have their staying power. And um, in in my research as a as a cognitive bias researcher, I've come to find that a lot of people 
are highly susceptible to um, self-validation. And what I mean by that is if I'm inputting um, information into the test, into the theory, uh, the MBTI uh, test or theory, um, and I get back positive stuff and I get back like, oh, you're you're intuitive. This is how you see the world. This is how you make decisions. It's all super great. Um, nobody ever wants to be told that they're lazy or mean or rude, right? But these are all trait words that some people have. Um, they feel much better about themselves, boosts self-esteem. We like getting our self-esteem boosted. Um, and so, and, and we tend to keep those feelings for things that we like. So if I get an MBTI report and it says I'm an INTJ, I'm like, okay, what's an INTJ? And I read all about it. And it makes me feel better about myself, whether I learn something about myself, quote unquote, or uh, something is verbalized in a way that I hadn't really thought about before, then I'm going to remember that and I'm going to hold that piece dear to me. So I think people just like it because it's validating and it boosts our self-esteem. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, I do want to say that I know that I'm a Ravenclaw and probably a Miranda as opposed to a Charlotte or Carrie. I think I'm a Miranda. Uh, and that may be all I really need to know about myself, those two things. Alexander Swan is an associate professor of psychology. At, oh, I'm also a muffin, by the way, uh, uh, at Eureka College and host of a podcast about psychology in movies called uh, Cinema Psych. We will take a little break here. We will come back and we will talk to someone about the whole idea of finding love in your four-letter type. And time to say some thank yous. This show is produced by our rock star intern, Carol Chen. I don't know what her personality type is, though. In fact, the only producer whose personality type I know is Carolyn McCusker, a.k.a. McCusker, who is an INTP, because that's what I am. And we obviously are better than everyone else. Uh, also assisting here, our senior producer, Lily Tyson, and Jonathan McPants. His personality type is P-A-N-T. Uh, he's been handling a lot of the clips and stuff like that for this show. And the technical producer today is the big kid, the big kid, Katie Tolarski, our boss, is in here technically producing. Okay, our final segment is about looking for love in 16 different personality types. Jessica Alderson is the founder of So Synced, a 16 personality based dating app uh, and she joins us now Jessica welcome to the conversation hi Colin yeah thank you so much for having me so tell us how this works let's say that uh, somebody becomes uh, a client of your service what happens yeah sure so you sign up to the app the first part is like a kind of typical dating app sign up and then we have the option of taking a personality test, or you can input your personality if you know it already. And actually a lot of people do now, as you mentioned, it's a very popular test. Um, and then, yeah, essentially you get a summary of your personality type in shareable snippets. Um, you know, we kind of explain how you act in dating relationships in particular, there's obviously a focus on that. And then you go through to the app and we have an algorithm that essentially prioritizes um, kind of, you know, 
perfect or ideal um, personality matches. And there's a, a kind of spectrum there. So it's not like binary. Um, and yeah, so that, that's kind of how it works. It is tricky, right? I mean, it, you know, when you say it's not binary, for example, I am a very, in a very fruitful and satisfying long-term relationship with someone who I, I certainly am introverted. Uh, I think she is introverted, but the difference between us would be expressed this way. And it's, this is a very accurate statement. I think I want to go to a party. And then I get there and I'm completely, completely miserable and I can't wait to leave. She thinks she doesn't want to go to a party and will try to get out of going to the party. will do anything to get out of going to the party. And then she goes and she's the life of the party. So, you know, you can, you can be introverted. <laughs> And not resemble the introvertedness of another person. These binaries, they seem kind of complicated and it seems an awful lot like our abacus uh, bead slides into the middle a little bit. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to the fact that it's so binary. Um, and I know you kind of, you know, discussed this earlier. I think one of the beautiful things about that is it really gives people a way of I guess, kind of relating, like, you know, in some ways, like finding their tribe on Reddit and, you know, finding people like them to <laughs> talk to, which for some personality types that are rare can be really difficult. Um, so it kind of just like makes it slightly easier for people to use really. Um, but yeah, like as kind of, you know, you discussed earlier, there are challenges around that as well. And it is, of course, um, a spectrum on all the kind of axes. Right. It is the official uh, position of this show, by the way. You should not date anybody that you meet on Reddit because your chances of being your chances of being murdered go way up. Um, so on the other hand, these aren't like Lego blocks that kind of match up with holes and pegs, right? It's not like if I'm an INTP, then I need to find, I don't know, an ESFJ or something, right? I mean, knowing a type doesn't necessarily tell you the type that you need or, or say more about that? Yeah. So basically you have a type and then we have a kind of scale of, you know, these two would be your most ideal matches. And then it kind of goes down to the least ideal matches. And what we describe that as, as is as your chance of finding a strong connection with them. And it's not that you would never find a strong connection with your least ideal personality match. It just means that the chances of that are a lot lower than finding a strong connection with your perfect personality match. Can you give an example? Um, of, can you give an example of like a certain four-letter combination or one of the sixteen types that might work well together with one of the other sixteen types? Yeah. So the pairing that we see most commonly on the app is ENFP and INTJ, and you see this uh, this pairing just happens all the time, even though INTJs are super rare. And ENFPs are pretty rare as well. Um, they just always manage to find each other. I don't know how it happens. And ENFPs are, you know, warm. They're like very curious. They're very social. They're kind of life of the party type personalities. And INTJs are kind of more stoic, kind of tend to be a bit more, well, well a lot more private, um, kind of a bit more mysterious. Um, and their energies just seem to really complement each other. 
But, you know, in a way, we're almost asking a kind of Kierkegaardian question about love at this point, because the, the, the contrast you describe could be a recipe for a wonderful amount of balance where one person teaches the other about the virtues and qualities and satisfactions of certain kinds of experiences that that person wouldn't necessarily seek out. And that ideally would be kind of a two-way street. Uh, You'd both sort of help each other experience life a little bit differently in a way that balances out. But it also could be a nightmare. (laughs) You've got two people whose idea of happiness seems kind of radically different. So say a little bit more about, about how you think that through. Yes, yeah, there's a few things to say on this, and it's a really important topic. I mean, firstly, I think it makes sense that we've evolved to essentially be attracted to people who have complementary strengths and weaknesses to ourselves. Because, you know, kind of like thousands of years ago, or even now, to some extent, you make a stronger team, right? And you're more likely to kind of, inverted commas, survive um, if you've got a more complete skill set. So it makes sense to be attracted to differences, but then actually we pair people with a certain amount of similarities or a specific type of similarities. So you form that strong connection. It's kind of a bit of both really, Um, you know, one extreme or the other is usually not great. Um, But then, yeah, those same differences that attract you to each other can end up kind of pushing you away if you don't manage them in the right way. So there can be, you know, like sparks at the beginning. And then if you're not mindful of your differences and if you don't, I guess, uh, approach your relationship kind of with intention and care, um, it can end up not going so well. So what we're really passionate about at So Synced is not only using personality types in our kind of algorithm, but also in like content and kind of helpful advice and materials to like understand your partner. Um, and kind of build a, a really great relationship with them. This will uh, probably be the last question, but some people listening to our conversation, Jessica, might hear the mechanized hum of uh, the next algorithm and the next algorithm after that and the better algorithm, the quote-unquote better algorithm, which makes some people nervous because it seems to re- remove an all, awful lot of serendipity and happenstance and chance and, and get things down to, to predictive models. I don't know. What's your answer to that? Yeah, I think that still is serendipity on an app. Like we see an app as another location to meet someone, you know, whether you're at a bar or a dinner party, you're meeting through friends. It's just like another location. There's still so, so many variables at play and there's still so much chance. And I do, or I am really passionate about building an incredible algorithm because, you know, there are so many people out there struggling to find the right partner and divorce rates are super, super high. So you know, I think you can combine increasing your chances of meeting the right person for you with just like natural serendipity, which is like an innate kind of feature of just the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that sounds like a, a great place to end too. Jessica Alderson is the founder of So Synced, a 16 personalities based dating app. We're going to say goodbye for now. Thanks once again to our intern, Carol Chen, for sending us down this road. And here we go out. It's fun.